unfortunately, it does sometimes take a crisis to wake people up to the idea that there is risk out there as well as opportunity. Hello, my name is Dante Desparte, and I'm Circle's Chief Strategy Officer and Head of Global Policy. And as you could probably tell today, I'm a guest host on uh, today's episode of The Buddy Movement. It is a great honor to be joined in today's episode with Dr. Richard Berner, who's a clinical professor of finance and professor of management practice at NYU Stern and a co-director of the Volatility and Risk Institute. A whole host of areas very close to home for me as NYU Stern and particularly the Risk Management Program is my alma mater. So Dr. Berner, welcome to The Money Movement. Uh, Very excited to have you on uh, today's program. Thanks, Dante. Thanks for the opportunity. Well, Dr. Berner, before we get into some new research and a new research briefing that you have written for the Bretton Woods Committee on a very, very hot topic, I think at the moment, on governance and addressing governance issues in the crypto ecosystem, I can't help but ask, how does a venerable professor, renowned economist, and really great thinker about risk and volatility in the financial system, find your way to the crypto industry and to digital assets? What was the allure? It's a great question, Dante. I think the allure was the notion that technology, which has made enormous progress in the financial services industry, as well as in our economy at large, um, is taking another step in digital assets. And I just felt this is something we need to learn about and see whether or not we can learn about some of the issues in this new technology from what we've done in the past, or whether or not there are significant differences between the way this technology affects our lives and our financial activities and what we have done in the past. Well, and one one question I have, uh, Dr. Berner, is, is, you know, I have been personally party to many of the global policy and regulatory conversations on what to do with digital assets, what to do with cryptocurrencies, and more particularly, what to do with stablecoins since at least 2019. And, you know, oftentimes regulators speak of this idea of technology neutral, risk based, activity based regulation. But when it comes to cryptocurrencies and blockchain, and particularly the use of open blockchains, you often find that this question of technology neutrality starts to wear a little thin. And so I, I'd be curious, you know, as, as you think about your research and lessons we can draw from history, is that assertion true in your mind uh, of this lack of technology neutrality among policymakers and regulators uh, when it comes to this space? It is, absolutely. And so I'd modify what you just said, and we've articulated this uh, in our earlier work by saying, yes, we should be technology neutral in terms of principles, but we might be technology specific in terms of the tools that we need to address particular problems. And it's always a case of picking the right tool for the job. The other principle I think is relevant uh, is when we look at the risks in each of these activities, um, as well as the benefits, we want to say same risk, same regulatory outcome. So if there's a need for regulation, then we ought to look to other areas where we've seen similar risks and think about ways that either those tools that we already have can be used or with some modification that they can be adapted to the new echo structure. Right. And so herein, maybe to jump into a little bit of one, just the policy direction of travel and, and your thinking in, in this brief that you've written for the Bretton Woods Committee on Governance in the Crypto Ecosystem, is that, you know, does it take a crisis like we've had in 2022 in this industry with nearly $2 trillion of uh, market value lost 
a whole host of cascading failures. Uh, when I was at the NYU Stern uh, School of Business earlier this year, I delivered a keynote in which I analogize this point in time to a blend of the dot-com bubble bursting and to Dodd-Frank. And so if we've had that moment and we've put down a $2 trillion down payment on the future, what lessons do we draw more immediately from this existing sort of situation and market correction that we're in? And what lessons can policymakers, regulators, and candidly industry draw? And so, you know, I'll turn to you to look at, you know, some of the governance questions, because I believe where all else fails, governance is the real difference maker. But what sort of specific things stand out to you in these lessons of uh, the recent crisis that we've had in in digital assets? Well, it's a great and broad question, uh, Dante. First of all, I'd say that, uh, unfortunately, it does sometimes take a crisis to wake people up to the idea that there is risk out there as well as opportunity. And so, you know, the whole purpose of uh, regulation is to address market failure. And, you know, I think we may see examples of that, not just in digital assets, but continuing elsewhere. The recent banking turmoil, I think, is, uh, is evidence of that. And what we're trying to achieve when we regulate is to protect investors, protect consumers, and make sure that markets are fair and effective so that we can have a financial system that's resilient to shocks and and that it really works well. And that uh, means we want to promote financial stability as well. And last, we want to uh, prevent illicit activities on, and financial crime to the extent that we can. So those are the broad overarching goals. And in that regard, you know, I, I think that most people agree that it's good to have Uh, transparency for market functioning and market effectiveness. It's also very important to have resilient markets and institutions uh, that people can trust. And that word, that five-letter word is one of the most important in financial services because when people trust what they're doing, then they're willing to extend credit. They're willing to engage with people. They're willing to uh, engage in transactions and know that the other end of the transaction is something that's going to happen you know, more or less. There may be changes to it, but those things are all really important. So the whole idea of governance basically is about establishing rules of the game. It's about establishing the ways that we can build trust uh, and that people understand on both sides of transactions, on both sides of uh, activities, that they understand what those rules are. And if the rules are broken, there's going to be some recourse and some enforcement against them. So to get specific, you know, I think, and we should, I think that what you've seen with the with the big shock in the so-called crypto winter is some erosion of, of trust, uh, but that doesn't invalidate the whole uh, nature of the technology. What I think is really important is to demonstrate that there are benefits and that they, the way that people can uh, use them or, or realize them is going to be trustworthy. And, and I think that's important. We can talk about some of the details around digital assets that really matter here. But I think that's the framework. No, well, the framework makes an entire sense. And candidly, as I was reading the report and thinking through the report, I also reflected back on Circle's journey. And one of the very first things we did as a company vis-a-vis this question of governance was stand up effectively the equivalent of a self-regulatory organization. And so the company went as far as we could get with domestic payments and money transmission licensing 
which as you know, is a, a state-driven activity and, and requires examinations amongst uh, the states where Circle is licensed. But that put us at the outset on a level playing field to companies like PayPal and Stripe and everyday payments activities, but then realizing that the novelty of blockchain-based financial services, the open nature of it, and the expectations of trust, as you said, in a digital currency would also warrant additional layers of governance. And so we created a, a consortium to effectively serve as that, uh, to bridge that gap. In a void of regulatory clarity, which is oftentimes one of the biggest complaints in the sector, do you think that's a governance model that makes sense to sort of look at the self-regulatory structure as one governance you know, opportunity that can be better leveraged in the industry? I think it is one, uh, for sure. Some other people have proposed that. And I think that the real question is, you know, if you're trying to solve a problem to get people to agree on what those rules are, that's kind of a collective action problem, you know, getting everybody into the uh, into the corral and thinking about how we're going to agree on what those rules look like. Then an SRO is, is certainly one venue in which those things can happen. But it's also important to have a framework for thinking about what those rules look like so that people can agree on them and that they're, you know, pretty clear. Uh, to people and that they are simple enough so people can understand them, but not so simple that they don't cover uh, contingencies that might arise. And I think that's really the balance that can be achieved in part uh, with an SRO. So I think it's it may be necessary, but maybe not sufficient to achieve what we're trying to accomplish. Well, one of the things, you know, kind of going back to history and uh, volatility and risk. And, and so in some ways, you know, the advent of cryptocurrencies was a response to the smoking crater left behind by the uh, 2008 financial crisis and questions of excess leverage and the daisy chain of market risk and failures. And we all are now experts in hindsight around these types of risks and have, you know, effectively found that many of the same risks and same governance failures and same lapses in the digital assets economy might have just been uploaded onto the Internet. And so the risks have become more discoverable. And oftentimes when risk starts to unravel in the digital assets market, it happens over days and, and typically weekends. Terra Luna, the algorithmic stable and name only coin, for example, failed over the course of a weekend. We saw, of course, the, the epic failure of FTX, perhaps more to do with fraud and mismanagement and risks of opportunity than a native technology risk. But nonetheless, it was an unraveling that occurred very quickly over the course of a weekend. And then we've learned fast forward into 2023 that the banking system could import risk to the digital assets economy as well with three successive bank failures back to back to back. And so the question then is, have we drawn sufficient lessons from 2008? And you know, what is the... you know? Again, given the theme of governance in this Bretton Woods briefing, where is the onus of obligation and accountability and opportunity? Is it regulators and public policymakers? Do you place the onus on industry? Do we need investors to do better vetting and underwriting? Or is it merely a, a blend of all of the above? It's all of the above. And uh, you know, I'm firmly of that belief because, first of all, one of the big lessons from 2007-9 and that crisis is that we need to look at the financial system holistically. We need to think about where there are vulnerabilities in the system and how shocks will expose those vulnerabilities. And what we learned then, of course, was that there were lots of vulnerabilities. Unfortunately, the reform program really addressed banking system more than uh, the rest of the system, uh, including non-bank financial intermediaries and 
uh, what I call systemically relevant markets. Mm. And we're starting to think about those issues, but I would argue that importantly, when you address one part of the system with a bunch of regulations, which may be good and well-intentioned and which may work, nonetheless, you're going to promote regulatory arbitrage into other parts of the financial system. Technology also enables that migration. So that's important. And I think in this case, as you mentioned, Dante, there's no question that after the financial crisis, people's trust was eroded, both in institutions, public and private, uh, and in market actors. And so the erosion of that trust leads people to think, where else can I go? Mm. And this technology, I think, has been uh, in part the answer to that. So, you know, one way of expressing the narrative around digital assets is that it is a rejection of the failed systems of the past. Right. So my response to that is to say, okay, but let's look at those systems as they exist today. Let's try to make them more resilient. Let's try to make them better. Let's try to make them more trustworthy. And I think we can take lessons from what we have done in those directions and apply them to digital assets because the principle I articulated a moment ago of same risk, same regulatory outcome, I think is really an important one. And also the one you mentioned, technology neutral principles to be sure, but the tools that we might wanna use digital assets could, could be quite different from the tools that we use even where there's technology applications in uh, traditional financial services. So I think those are a couple of the things I could go on, but I'm sure yeah. I'm going to ask some more questions. <laughs> yeah, no, no. Well, and, and each of those each of those makes an enormous amount of sense uh, to me, Dr. Berner. And I suppose what I'm looking for, and I know there are no magic bullets, but I, I am deeply encouraged by by your research and deeply encouraged by groups like the Bretton Woods Committee paying more attention and energy into effectively what I esteem to be this convergence between traditional finance and this sort of emerging fintech and digital assets economy. And that where once upon a time, uh, especially with crypto, there was a narrative problem. Uh, there were crypto anarchists or crypto utopians. But in many cases, both parties might have argued that the technology would disintermediate banks and relegate Wall Street to history. But what these recent experiences have taught us over the last many years is that there's actual codependence here. And perhaps this is not about a disruption or disintermediation of traditional financial systems, but rather convergence between the two. And so, you know, we, we've we've tried to do a lot at Circle on, on exactly promoting that kind of operating model, and then where possible, argue for exponential improvements, whether it's financial inclusion, uh, financial integrity, and sort of a host of other areas. The technology just isn't magically going away. And so, I, I was going to ask you a question about you know this you know somewhat cynical market response that we've seen among regulators and policymakers of really presenting three choices let it burn, contain it, or regulate crypto like gaming uh, and kind of keep it isolated. Do you see that with some degree of cynicism or do you think this is, uh, you, it might not age well as a policy reaction to these last few years? Well, on the first point, I haven't heard too many policymakers say, let it burn. I have a tiny bit of sympathy for that perspective because if you lack the things that we've just been talking about, governance, rules of the game, and so on, you know, then the whole ecosystem, there's a risk that it would deteriorate into something more like gaming. And mm -hmm. uh, it's pretty clear that while this space has been around for more than a decade, it has yet to prove itself in applications in a way that's scalable. And I, I think that that 
you know, we can say there's not sufficient regulation around it, which clearly would be a benefit to it. But I think in addition, as we just talked about, the industry has to step up and demonstrate the benefits, the willingness to engage in your efforts to promote an SRO uh, and to have rules of the game that are consistent, that can build trust. Mm. Those are the kinds of things which I think some of the technology folks don't realize are much more important than the technology in building trust and in building scale and in building the growth of the industry. So to your point, I would say, yeah, there is a codependence. There's going to be a codependence. There has to be a balance between those two things because people see benefits in each area. It's pretty clear that the the scale of the traditional financial services industry dwarfs that of, of the narrower crypto asset space. But the truth is, as I mentioned earlier, you know, financial services companies are technology companies that provide financial services. Now, technology is an enabler for that, but technology can bring great benefits and risks. So take speed, which you mentioned earlier. Speed right. can provide benefits. It can be reducing of risks. If you narrow the time frame during which the process of transacting and then clearing, settling, and paying for that transaction is reduced, then you're going to reduce risk. And right. that's a potential benefit of some of the technologies that have been developed recently. Right. But the speed also brings you know, some risk with it. And you know, people need to figure out how exactly to balance that speed so that we have some speed bumps or some speed limits. After all, the analogy that comes to mind immediately is our highway system. Mm-hmm. We build a safe and sound platform on which we can travel uh, at higher speeds than city streets. But we still have speed limits because if we don't have them, uh, then you're likely to have some people who are going to be excessively speeding, and that's going to create problems. <laughs> that's funny. You remind me of, a, of an article I wrote some years ago. Uh, back in 2011, you'll remember uh, the algorithmic trading, the high-frequency trading uh, company, Knight Capital, I remember it well. <laughs> failed over the course of uh, minutes because it introduced a ro- rogue algorithm that bought positions the, the business couldn't afford. And so there are always teachable lessons around the role of speed and the role of novel technology in finance. And, and I think the industry I, rightly has to learn some lessons around those boundaries and that despite the fact that the rule makers have you know, no statute of limitations for when they could exercise those rules or their authorities, Nonetheless, money and the movement of money is rules-based, irrespective of its form factor, uh, whether a digital currency or a physical analog dollar. And in knowing the audience of the money movement, uh, Dr. Berner, I- I'd be curious if you could impart you know, a few lessons to the developers, the builders, the operators, and the investors in this space for whom there is this maybe overly simplistic but pretty constant game of cat and mouse and game of regulatory enforcement and regulation through enforcement that's playing out, what sort of takeaways do you think the developers, the actors, and the leaders in this space can draw around the critical nature of governance and the things that they can do do themselves to establish what I like to classify as personhood, but also I like to classify as that trust that trust quotient that you described, which I think is critical in any sector, but particularly when it comes to money? Sure. So we think there are four things that the industry could do. That's not limit. There, there probably are more, but we, we think four are salient. And the first of which is develop codes of conduct that are shared and best practices for coders and you know money services businesses and exchanges. I think that's important because it builds a culture of 
risk management, uh, shared rules of the road in a way that regulation will never achieve. You know, it, that's the other side of the regulatory framework, I think. Mm-hmm. Second, implement really strong expectations for transparency. You know, as I mentioned earlier, if you have transparency in markets, people understand what's going on, then, you know, that reduces the, what we call the asymmetry in information mm-hmm. that distorts incentives. People have the right incentives on both sides of a transaction or an activity. Uh, I think that promotes trust in market functioning. The third, and by the way, those both of those derive from traditional finance. So we're not saying stuff that's new here. We're simply adapting it to the crypto space. The third thing I think is important is, you know, have a real constructive exchange between people in the industry and their regulators. Now, there's always a risk of regulatory capture, right? Mm-hmm. And people are very wary about that. So they want to maintain arm's length between regulators and those they regulate. My view is having you know been involved on both sides uh, is that that dialogue really promotes understanding, it promotes learning. And I think that's particularly important in the crypto arena because you know most regulators don't understand the technology and its implications, and they need to. So they need to learn. Conversely, you know, I've talked to many people in the in the crypto space who don't understand regulation, <laughs> and they need to learn about that too. Mm-hmm. And they need to understand why it matters and what's what people are trying to do, not necessarily to limit their profitability, but actually to make them more viable and more resilient. And the last piece relates to the cross-border issues that are so prevalent. Finance mm-hmm. is a global industry. Everybody knows that. We want to make sure that the playing field is level, uh, not only within borders, but across borders. And so, you know, sure, there are different laws and jurisdictions and different cultures across and and within many borders. But if people want to transact on a cross-border basis uh, and have efficient markets, then we need to have some principles that apply, you know, across the board. So I'm not in the let it burn camp uh, because I think we need to protect consumers and investors. And if you let it burn, I think many people will find that they are singed by, you know, by the fire. But I don't think equally that we should have a, a light touch uh, set of principles or a light touch regulatory environment that is designed perhaps with good intentions, you know, to promote uh, the growth of the industry. I think that's going to end up in tears. Yeah. Well, look, I entirely agree. And, and I, I think America, at least, and the piece of me that remains always optimistic that we'll figure it out societally is it often takes a crisis to sort of galvanize regulatory responses. I mean, you needed the 2008 crisis to get banking reforms. You needed the dot-com bubble bursting to get a more durable, credible, value-adding internet development and roadmap. And and I I would sort of hope that uh, to your point around internationalization and the global nature, not only of finance, but certainly of finance at internet scale, implied by digital assets requires real regulatory harmonization. The very first of those pillars was actually financial crime compliance and financial integrity, all the way back to 2016 with the Financial Action Task Force. And so today, you see a lot of jurisdictions, most prominently Europe, with a very comprehensive framework for digital assets. Uh, But you're seeing this sort of despite crypto winter, it might become a crypto ice age unchecked. Uh, You're seeing whole jurisdictions competing for the time, talent, and treasure of the developers in this industry. I do think this call for harmonization uh, is being answered. The question is, 
what's the most appropriate regime and and how do you ensure that you know industry has a seat at the table as a lot of these jurisdictions are kind of contemplating new rulemaking well i think for their part some of the regulators are trying to promote that uh they've opened offices of innovation at least in the us the bis the bank for international settlements has set up a uh you know an innovation platform uh, with offices around the world so i think there are venues and opportunities for collaboration and cooperation and what people need to do is sit down at the table and listen to each other uh, so that they can learn, as I said earlier. I, I think that's, you know, the first and most fundamental step to think about where are the benefits. And I think that the industry needs to acknowledge where are the risks, not to advertise, you know, their wares as something that is bulletproof from the get go, because I've never seen anything that's bulletproof uh, <laughs> completely. And so I think that, I mean, again, that's why we have speed limits. That's why we have Mm-hmm. why we have some r- rules of the game and you know if people break laws and the laws you may not like the laws but if they break the laws then our justice system is such that we need to enforce those and we need to have some appropriate penalties to create incentives not to break the laws and if the laws are flawed or the regulations are flawed uh, and need ad- adaptation then we should change them but the point is the underlying framework has to be something on which people agree that's what's going to build trust Right. Well, I totally agree with you. And and sort of um, as we wrap up our conversation, you know, you, you remind me of a couple of my own adages around thinking about risk in this space is that we're often doing with enforcement actions, things that can be solved with better disclosure. And as the crypto companies, I think, look at themselves in the mirror, there are a number of arguments that have been made historically that have not aged well, not least of which is this issue of token agnosticism. We as an exchange will list any token that any market participant or consumer would want to have, and the choice should be theirs. I I think history has not, that model has not aged well in history, and it's one of these simple fixes. And, you know, here in Washington, D.C., for example, the algorithmic stablecoin Terra Luna bought the branding rights for the national stadium. And for a period of time, even after its collapse, each of the seats in the national stadium bore the name Terra Luna almost like a monument to the worst kind of financial alchemy. And so, Dr. Berner, I guess any last words on, on the research? We will, of course, in, the, in this particular Money Movement episode, link to the report for the Bretton Woods Committee titled Addressing Governance Issues in the Crypto Ecosystem. We're all going to be great beneficiaries of not only your research in the space, but of course, of the work the Bretton Woods Committee will do to continue having this, this conversation around responsible innovation irrespective of the technology stack and irrespective of the actor. Um, So I'll leave it to you. If you have any parting words for the Money Movement audience that you would like to share, uh, then last word is yours. And then I'm going to end with a a big thank you. Thanks, Dante. I think that's a great way to wrap it up. I think that the most important point that we've discussed today is how to build trust and how people in both the regulatory and industry spaces need to get together cooperatively to achieve that. Well, Dr. Berner, thank you so much. The physical dollar would say in God we trust and a digital currency would say in code we trust. But in your research, I deeply trust and and all of us will be uh, great, great, great beneficiaries of your work and your insights here. And um, grateful to you uh, for joining us on today's uh, episode of The Money Movement. Thanks for having me.